What do you get when you mix evil plans, inventions, and movie sign? You get a good reason to watch movies after work. Hey there, guys. This is Thomas Green back with movies after work, and I am joined yet again by the fabulous and funny Nikki of Trivial Theater. Hey, how's it going, Thomas? It is excellent to have you back here again. Always love having you around to talk movies, and today we are going to be talking about, specifically, movies that have been on the show Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, one of my absolute favorite things. It, it's got a lot of uh, background for the kind of reviews that I do. It's, yeah, for me, M- MST just has a lot of background for my life in general. Uh, I, I was introduced to the show when I was about six years old, I believe, and... Wow. Um, and it just became i it it became just a part of a, a a staple of my life ever since uh so i mean we're coming up close on 30 years of of it being a regular part of my life and my all-time favorite television show and it completely ruined me watching movies ever again <laughs> well, it doesn't take much well, I remember in uh, in '98, I watched for the first time Terminator Two: Judgment Day, and uh, it's easy for me to remember the year because that's the year in Terminator Two that Skynet's apocalypse happens. Uh, so I'm I'm sitting there as this kid who's not old enough to watch this movie yet by any stretch of the imagination, sitting there to watch this movie, and. At the beginning of the movie, Sarah Connor, you know, says that was the year it happened, and as a kid, seeing like all these dead bodies and burning cars and stuff, all this horrific imagery on the TV. Instead, my reaction is, "What? Damn it! I miss everything living in a small town." (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I and I mean and. There's there are certain there are certain jokes, and I'm sure you have some as well. But there are certain jokes that were maybe not running gags, even just within an episode or a whole or the whole series that just stick with you that always instinctively come out. Um, one of those for me is if I'm watching a movie and there is a. Uh, a a dead but any like anything besides a a living human that has an open mouth that's just stuck open mm-hmm. i immediately just imagine i just immediately in my head go ave maria <laughs> immediately where my head goes immediately um, um. <laughs> yeah i mean do do you have any of those yourself oh yeah um Randomly, I'll be doing something, and my brain will break out into ma- the Master Ninja theme song beatbox that um, Joel and the bots do. Like, nice. That always just comes into my head, and it's just like I'm sitting there kind of doing a little bit of a dance to it. And it's like, I need to stop doing this, otherwise people are going to think I'm weird. <laughs> and uh, I recently found um, what, is, what has become one of my favorite YouTube channels, um... Their name is based off of um, one of the bands created by Joel and the Bots. It's um, Narcotic Casserole, and it's just... <laughs> I, and the name sounded so familiar, and I was trying to figure out, like, why does that sound familiar? And he, I messaged him to tell him how much I enjoyed his content, and he told me, and it's like, oh, for God's sake, how did I forget that? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, the, I mean, the the music on the show was fantastic. I mean, you could do an entire episode of any any show, podcast, otherwise, just about, you know, the best songs on the show. Oh, yeah. I, I know for myself, um, Sodium from Horror at Party Beach, that is my ringtone. Oh, nice. So I'll be walking through a store or in some public place, and all of a sudden in, in my phone, you know, out of my pocket, I'll just hear, hit it, sodium. I'll, and, and I always try to quickly get my phone out to be polite, but at the same time, I'm looking around like, okay, if anyone recognizes it, they're my new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been surprised. Um, in my neck of the woods, it's relatively small, pretty conservative. We're not, I'm like six hours from Minneapolis. But it's not like something that defines a lot of things for this area. I have an MST shirt, and I, I wore it out to a thing, and it was just like, I had so many people come up to me and go, hey, MST. It was just like, wow. That's awesome. You just don't expect, I guess you don't expect it, even though there are so many fans. Well, it's, it's I argue that it is the, it is, it, it is the ultimate cult show that has ever existed. Oh, yeah. Um, in in the same way that there's sort of an unspoken rule that you can't be an indie band if you if your music's ever been on MTV, <laughs> I I've always had the rule of you can't be a cult TV show if you've ever been on the cover of a TV guide. Uh, oh, so, yeah, that's I could see that. I could definitely see that. <laughs> so whenever people are like, "Oh, the biggest cult TV show of all time is is the original Star Trek," my immediate I'm always just like, "No." No, it doesn't make... How is that even remotely cult? That like, doesn't, I mean... One, yeah, yeah, one, it's not really that cult. Right. It might have started out cult, but it no longer is cult. But Very regardless, true. it still doesn't fit that criteria of never being on the cover of uh, of a TV guide. I mean... Absolutely. I, and I even, I even researched just to make sure I wasn't, you know, talking out of my ass. And basically, unless you're talking, like... TV Guide ranking the best TV, you know, cult shows or sci-fi right. shows of all time. MST really did not live in the pages of TV Guide outside of the listings of what was playing on Comedy Central or Sci-Fi Channel, depending on, wow. the, on the year. So, the, it it's one of those shows where you know it has fans, and you know it has a following, but there is not that same sort of... Um, large universe surrounding it for people to to be able to quickly point and identify them. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And it it seems like it's that it's like that it's like the best kept secret that everybody knows. Exactly. Yes. Like uh, and and just the the way it survived. I mean, it was off the air for what? Let's see, it went off the air in '99 and it came back in 2017. I mean, yeah. that's. It survived that entire time just through, like they always said, circulate the tape, circulate the, the mm -hmm. discs, circulate the URLs. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, and I think... And even the... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think... I, I, I know the la the series ended in 99, but I think it got two years of syndication before the ah. the Mike Nelson versus Sci-Fi Channel battle caused the syndication to, to not get renewed. That's true. And it did also have Turkey Day marathons on a yes. pretty regular basis, I think, in some way, shape, or form. Yes. It, uh, if somebody bought the syndication rights to MST3K, 
and did Turkey Day marathons for their for their their channel, whatever TV channel it would be, mm-hmm. they they could make a lot of money off of that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Well, and they were so well done; like it didn't lose what it was. It, even like the ones in the past years, you know, they've they've kept that same feel in some way, shape, or form. The show is brilliantly timeless because there are the the amount of jokes that are in that show that you sit there, you watch an episode, and go, "Wait, when when did this episode air originally?" Because this joke is still good, is still fresh. Like, oh yeah, uh, there were in season three they were making. Um, I think it was in Hercules Against the Moon Man. They make a Tom Cruise Scientology joke in that episode, and that's season three. So that's wow. early, that that's like early mid nineties that 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 they're making that joke, oh, long yeah. like well before anything. You know, I'm pretty sure they had a couple of making fun of Donald Trump jokes in there. They had jokes about all sorts of different things, and you sit there and you watch it, and you just go, man. Besides needing to know. Things like, you know, understand what the I thought you were Dale, or it's not nice mm-hmm. to fool Mother Nature. Like, besides needing to know what those older commercials are, the amount of jokes that live on live in this show that are timeless or still relevant to this day, at the very least, is impressive. Oh, yeah. Well, and it really is a thinking person show to some extent. Like, the fact that they... I remember watching one and they were talking pretty extensively about Lord of the Rings. And it was like, Mm -hmm. back then, it was just the books, or it might have been, the I guess, the cartoon uh, version of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings as well. Yeah. But to have... To, to have that much insight, and it wasn't even like a like a straight up plot point. It was kind of a kind of an off thing, like you know Tom uh, Bombadil or whatever. Yeah. But it was it was just those books are not easy reads. You know, there's no. philosophical stuff, there's TV stuff, there's movie stuff, there's D and D stuff. I mean, it's just incredible the the range of stuff. The writers was so well versed in so many levels. Yeah, they. they I mean, they were. The, the show is a brilliant example of what the importance of culture is. Oh, yeah. Because you need to, you know, you need to know so much, at least in being aware of its existence, to be able to get so much of the humor of that show. Well, and it, it goes so deep, too. Like, there was even jokes, and I don't remember, I think it was when Joel was still on, and I don't remember what the episode was, um... But they referenced back to a burger that they had in Minneapolis when they were doing um, the KTMA episodes. Mm. Yeah, I can't remember. It was like a. It wasn't a Juicy Lucy. Maybe it was, but it was like a specific bar that they went to back when they were doing the the. I guess, like yeah, the KTMA years. So. Yeah. Season zero. Exactly. Um. Yeah that that season which. It's just, it's so fascinating to watch that season. It is, um, very much so. Very much so. I actually the, really enjoy that season. I don't know what that says. Like, just the the level, it's not, it's hardly public access. Like, the, the work that's put in, just the response from people, and you can see every single little piece and, like, what it is, but it's just incredible the, the thought and perspective that went into that. It blows my mind. Well, and it it's, it really is a tribute to how clear the potential of the series was, as well as um, 
what the just the concept alone did to grab people's attention because like anyone who's a fan of the series but has never watched those episodes go back and watch them not not in a negative way but the energy of the that first season is drastically different than any oh, yeah. other se- season of that series that first season like there's not like they're not making nearly as many quips in well, and, it, and it's all movies. live riffing. It's not. It's yeah. not like they're, you know, have it scripted. Yeah, and they were they were improvising as they were watching the movie and recording it, and so as a result, there's less riffs um, because they're kind of getting them out there. There's not sort of that, you know, that energy that, in my opinion, Kevin Murphy I mean, was the heart of the what the energy of that show was oh absolutely um, without doubt they to me when bill corbett took over for tracy as crow mm-hmm. while he took over a lot of the personality stuff that tracy had created he adopted kevin murphy's energy into crow oh yeah that's that's oh yeah that's the big difference between those two crows to me is the energy the energy of sci-fi channel bill corbett crow is similar to that of tom servos once kevin murphy took over the role very true but they managed to keep them unique in their own ways too oh absolutely and and that's your that's and the that's another thing about the the fandom of this show that i love the civility Oh, yeah. You don't see you don't see people gain into ugly fights about Mike or Joel or Tracy or Bill or you know Frank or totally spacing on his name right now and I feel terrible. Uh, 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 Josh Weinstein or well Jay yeah. Evans Weinstein I think it's Josh. Yeah. Weinstein. Yeah, Weinstein. So. You know Frank or Weinstein. Like you don't hear these squabbles about it. You don't like there. I mean there is a, a camp that has negative feelings about Mike because of the way he behaved after the series ended, causing the series to lose its syndication. And it's an understandable grievance. But in terms of how people feel about the show as a whole, uh, you you really don't, you know, you don't see people gain into the kind of fights that you see people gain into about so many other things online over this show. Oh, agreed. I mean, yeah, you're not going to see a Star Wars level battle over, you know, the difference. You know, there was um, that that famous story about how when uh, Kevin Murphy took over for Servo, he got um, a dot print or dot matrix printed banner that mm-hmm. said, I hate your voice or something along those lines. Yeah. And he hung it up in his little office thing at Best Brains, um, their studio. And uh, he's kept it because it was such a goofy thing. Yeah. But like grand scheme, that's kind of the the kind of stuff that they ran up against. And it's kind of, I mean, it's so, it's so on point to have like literally a dot matrix banner insulting someone. Does that <laughs> not sound like the sort of thing TV's Frank would do? Oh, totally. They, it oh. sounds like to me, like if you tell me, oh, uh, a dot matrix banner about what you don't like about someone. I immediately think that's eh, something TV's Frank would do. <laughs> like Clayton would tell him to send some hate mail to somebody, and that's what he would do. 
I can totally that see that. <laughs> Better he'd send him an unhappy meal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's easily one of my favorite inventions is the unhappy oh, yeah. meals. Yeah, um, the drum machine too. The the kind of um, alien level yes. drum machine. Well, and that's a thing too. You look at the difference between well, Joel, Mike, and Jonah. Um, mm. I, I love the the differences that they brought to the to the satellite of love and just like Joel was very much focused around like the inventions and the letters and stuff. You really yes. didn't get that as much with Mike, but you got more kind of a little bit more dark humor and a little bit more. He just like he it was a different kind of humor that he brought, but it was always so much fun. And then Jonah just had that that great kind of personality thing going on. They all brought good stuff to the table. Yeah, well, and I mean, like, you you lost the inventions when it switched over to Mike. Like, not oh, yeah. immediately, but it died out. I would say, after Frank left, the show became a lot more meta than even it was okay. when Frank was there. It became more meta and, as a result, kind of abandoned the fan mail to a certain extent. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. And then I know Sci-Fi Channel had a lot of mandates. Like they wanted, they, they wanted the overarching story, which is why season eight was that traveling to different planets for Mike to blow up and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Which I, you know, I, I, I love that. <laughs> I, I loved them doing that with that season. I get why for a lot of regular fans it didn't sit well with them, but I, I mean, right. for myself, I loved it. See, and I came into it quite a lot later, like. I, I, I grew up a little bit with it. Like, I caught an occasional episode, but it didn't really latch onto me until the final season and, like, reruns on, on sci-fi. Um, like, it's one of those things I found it again, and it's like, oh, my God, I remember this, and got into it and kind of never looked back. We, my my father and I discovered it, funnily enough, they were, sh they put some movie in at the the video rental place inside the grocery store. Like, anyone who knows what Giant Eagle is, they remember Eagle Video. That was that was where we were, and it, at the time it was VHS tapes. So you had the trailers that played before. Because this was a, a Gramercy Pictures movie that they put in, whatever the movie was, one of the trailers was for MST3K, the movie. Ah, yeah. And so the trailer for that for the movie is how we discovered it. Nice. So... The first, my first big joke, I, my first joke that I laughed at big was, oh no, Tinkerbell's going down from the movie. <laughs> that was my, that was my first big joke that made me laugh a ton. So my dad went hunting, came home one day with Cave Dwellers on VHS. Nice. And proceeded to start recording season eight, which at that point I believe was at, um... I can't remember where it was, but he the first one he recorded was Prince of Space. Ah, so, Crankor. No, that's not Crankor. Yes. Is it? It yes. is Crankor. Yes, it is Crankor. Uh, so Cave Dwellers and Prince of Space were my first two episodes that I ever saw of the show. Wow. So well, good ones to start on. Very different. You know, yes. I, I hit the spectrum um, pretty wide on on my first go-through with that series. And start, you know, I started hunting it. Once I had DVDs, I started buying the collections, all sorts of stuff like that. Had all the VH, you know, we had all but 
maybe four of the episodes from the Sci-Fi Channel era, including the two summer blockbuster reviews and the Oscar special. Oh wow! There were only... I've never caught the Oscar special. I really, I'd like to. I'm sure it's probably someplace. I but... believe they have it on the Club MST website. Ah, uh, yeah that that is a great resource. Yes, it is. If you've never been on there and you're looking to get into MST3K, Club MST is the place to go. They have your way to get to any, pretty much any episode. Yeah. Uh, I imagine probably not the Netflix ones, but... I I think it points you towards Netflix, but it is Club Dash um, MST. It's not all one word. Um, And also, like, a lot of them are YouTube-based, so if it's one that's been taken down because, like, the um, Godzilla ones are constantly being taken down, Mm -hmm. um, there's others as well. Um, You might not, it might be a dead link. But there's always someone re-uploading it. Yes, it's almost impossible to. Uh, you have to. You have to be really lucky to get Revenge of the Creature. Oh yeah, yeah, um, totally. Because Universal still puts a lot of money into their monster movies, so yes, they do. <laughs> Revenge of the Creature that one goes up. You have to watch it quick because it's about to go right back down. Yeah, Deadly. Uh, I think Deadly Bees is like that too, and I don't exactly know why. But I've never like I've caught that one. I've caught half of it once. I went back to look at it again, and it was gone. Deadly Bees, I watched that one on Daily Motion. Oh, there you so go. So that's that's another place to go uh, to to catch some of the some of the movies. Yeah, and the the file quality is never going to be like it wasn't super to begin with because a lot of them were taped off TV. But yeah, don't go in expecting HD quality by any stretch, unless you're talking about the Netflix uh, seasons. Yes, yes. If you're watching Netflix, expect HD quality. For the rest of them, uh, if you're old enough to remember it, uh, tr- just try to remember what it was like watching something that you taped onto a blank VHS tape, and then watch yeah, it and, over and, and over again. quality. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The... That is one thing. Like when you're talking to people about, um, like new, if, like I, I, I did a couple videos on it, and to get people into the series, they'll say, "Where do you start?" And it's like, "Well, you can start anywhere." Yeah. But there's always that. People some, tend to go for the newest stuff because, you know, hey, it's the most recent. You go from that and then go back to, like, season two. You're almost going to, it's almost going to be like being slapped in the face with a fish because the quality of it is so different. I think, like, I think as long as you don't start, I would say never start with the Netflix ones. If you've okay. never, if you've never seen any Mystery Science Series 3000, don't start with Netflix. You like it's as as someone who started predominantly there, there's nothing wrong with starting with the sci fi channel years, which is season eight, nine, and ten. There's nothing wrong with starting with those seasons. Uh starting somewhere in there and then branching out from there. But yeah, you have to remember that this is this is a show that did not try to be anything more than it was, which was part of its charm. It was part of what made you love the show. Was Absolutely. they were constantly, especially during the Joel years, they were constantly well aware of the quality that they were producing as they made fun of other people for the quality of what they produced. <laughs> they were well aware that to people who didn't understand what they were watching, it would look like hypocrisy when in reality it's really just, it's a love of, 
you know, it's no different than Elvira showing you bat old horror movies. Oh yeah, it's well, and it was a total love letter to the. It, it, it's such an all encompassing thing. I mean, it's a, like you say, it's a love letter to all these great old movies and and what was done with such small budgets, and it sets its a precedence for what you know what what has become you know modern day reviewing of movies it's not done with a you know a monocle and a you know pinky in the air it's done from a level of you can make fun of it but still love it but it's done with love yeah well and i think i think even more so than just how we critique movies these days it to me it represents an, an ability to to say that it's okay for us to let movies that aren't quote unquote the best to exist. Oh yeah. Um there would be no cult following for movies like The Room without MST. A hundred percent. MST those... MST three K made it okay to look at a bad movie, watch it, laugh, look at your friends, and start the movie again to watch it again. Oh, yeah. And it is a total group experience. Like, watching a movie like The Room by yourself versus watching it with, with other people that can look at, you know, have that same appreciation or showing it to someone and explaining why there's an appreciation for it when they may just look at it and blow it off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, any anyone listening, if you have never watched uh, Mystery Science Theory 3000, Get on YouTube, watch some episodes. It is fantastic. Uh, it is, you know, again, is my personal favorite television series of all time. Uh, it has been since I was six years old, and I'm 33 now. So it it has stayed in the top slot through years and years and years of TV watching. <laughs> um, and, you know, basically every other show on in my top list has moved around, disappeared, been added in. My number one has stayed solid since I was six years old. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, I think, too, like, kind of a little bit of a tangent, but from a, and this is, you talk to people about why they love MST, and there, there is, there's something about it and what it can do for your mental health. Like, I, yes. I've been through times, and... It's one of those things where it's never, it's always been a thing I can go back to, and it just raises my spirits. Like, if I'm ever down, I can toss on an episode regardless of era. And it just, you know, it does, it just brightens your day. There's so much, you know, it's it's not simple humor, but it's it's humor that you don't have to, you, you can be at any level and enjoy. Because mm. there is a joke for everybody. It's not, it's not downputting it's not you know derogatory it's just fun i yeah i've only i've only ever met two people in my entire life who did not like the show and it's my grandparents and literally the the whole reasoning was they knew the movie was bad but they still wanted to know what was going on but it was hard because the guys wouldn't stop talking Oh yeah, that was it. Could... That was that was their that was their entire complaint. I, I've assured them on multiple occasions that if you don't understand what's going on, trust me, the guys being quiet and you paying attention is not going to help with any movie no. that gives you that issue. But oh god, no! I mean, do you try, try and explain Monster a Go Go to anybody? I mean, for God's sake, I'm not even sure how you would begin to explain that. 
that, yeah, uh, there's no explaining that. There's no, like, even ones that seem simple enough to explain, like, violent years. There's yeah. no explaining the violent years. There's no explaining Red Zone Cuba. Oh my god. <laughs> there's, you know, there's no explaining Fugitive Alien. Or Laser Blast. And... <laughs> la- la- no, Laser Blast is incredibly easy to explain. It literally, somebody saw Star Wars, noticed one of their friends looked like Mark Hamill, and they had a piece of PVC piping laying around the house, and they just kind of made up something from there. <laughs> That's the movie. They blew up a Star Wars billboard. <laughs> the great... That's... I mean, that's literally... I will say, regardless of anything about Laser Blast, that's probably the greatest fuck you I've ever seen to a mainstream movie from an indie B film in history. Yep. Is just that blatant fuck you moment. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> <coughs> I'm thinking, it's not subtle. Nothing about no. it is subtle. I'd say a good chunk of the budget probably went to explosives to, to blow the shit out of that. Nothing about that movie is subtle. No, God, no. <laughs> yes, the for the majority of Laser Blast's budget is A, explosions, B, whatever they used to bribe Roddy McDowell into doing the movie. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Because <laughs> they, they had to have bribed him with something. Eddie Deason, I guarantee you, they just... They called him, didn't even have to call his agent, called him, and he said yes. Oh, yeah. Um, and by, by that, I literally mean he, he answered the phone and said, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Roddy McDowell, there had to have been some bribing, because this, I mean, this even this is even below the Planet of the Apes TV series that Roddy McDowell did. So, What about, who was the other guy, um, the, the girlfriend's dad? Was in it too. He was a really, really well-known actor. Um, oh, what the hell was his name? I I couldn't I couldn't uh, tell you. I can't remember at all. I just remember. Ro- yeah, Rod. Ro- and he was I, more known at that point. In I time. just remember hush hush, just <laughs> constant hush hush. <laughs> that's all I remember. That's all I feel like I need to remember about him. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he that's pretty much all he did. So remember yeah. the important things. The rest doesn't matter. Absolutely. But, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I will say that one other thing that I love about MST is how the the people that were involved with it, or most of the people involved with it, have gone on to do other riffing things in mm-hmm. those same groups. Like, you have Cinematic Titanic, you had the film crew, you have um, Riff Tracks, you have the Mads. I mean, all of these yep. groups that have stepped together and done their thing, and they're doing it, you know, 30 or 20 years after everything, well, no, 30 years after it ended, right? Yeah. Yeah. No? I mean, right now, roughly Let's twenty. After, yeah. Technically twenty right now, but yeah. But yeah, they're all, you know, yeah, they're all very still, still very active in doing this, because it's what they enjoy doing. But more importantly, they know they have people out there that enjoy them doing it. So oh, yeah. it's clearly what they. It's clear that a big part of why they continue to do things like riff tracks, uh, especially since that's the the big one, is yeah. people's love of it. And MST is, you know, MST3K and the, the riffing that has industry that has been created because of it is like a lot of other aspects of the entertainment industry. As technology changes and grows, opportunities have grown for them. 
Um, if you, you know, like if you're somebody who's still kind of on the fence about watching Mystery Science Theater 3000, and you want to get a taste of the kind of stuff they're doing, go on YouTube and put in Riff Tracks Best of Harry Potter. <laughs> if you watch that That's video <laughs> and you are not laughing to the point of your side hurting and tears coming down your face, I can't help you. Because I've known people where I pit, like I had, I had a roommate, I pitched her MST3K. And she just kind of looked at me like I was crazy. I showed her that video. She was literally on the floor in tears laughing so hard. Nice. And that's what got her to, to watch the show. And she's and she watched some of it from there and enjoyed it. But that's how I got her into it, was showing her that and showing her that craziness. So. Well, and every, every person that comes into it has a different way in. Like, I took someone to um, the live Mads show with uh, Trace Beaulieu and Frank Conniff. I'd and love to go to one they of those. sit in the very front row and riff to, uh, like, Glenn versus Glendala or, um, oh, God, The Tingler or different ones mm-hmm. like that. And it is so much fun. And they are such down to earth people. And the person was hooked because of that experience. Yeah, and, and it if, was so cool to see someone see it for the first time. You almost wish you were in their shoes just to have that that mind exploding moment of oh my god, this is fucking incredible. Yeah, and if you like, if you ever listen to their podcast, Movie Sign with the Mads, that you know they talk about a lot of current movies and some older ones. But I mean, their take and views on film are brilliant, and they have a they have a great appreciation. Of everything in film while at the same time holding different films to different expectations based off of understandable things like budget, uh, prestige, you know, how many films into a franchise are you, stuff like that. So, oh, they, you know, they have, they have a great outlook when they're talking about films. I don't always agree with them, but I, <laughs> I, I can't disagree with the logic that gets them to the conclusions that they are in. Oh, agreed, a hundred percent. And it is it is well informed, and that, like you say, it is. They're they're not just going and saying, "Well, I hate this movie because, you know, this person looked at me weird in the, on camera." It's you know because of because of they had this budget and where did it go, or they missed this obvious story point, or whatever it is. I mean, they know movies yes. in and out, backwards and forwards. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's just fantastic. Um, it is. It is. Yeah, um, so the the big thing that we wanted to do today uh, for for the show, beyond just gushing about our, our shared love of the, the series, we wanted to discuss, uh, we each did our top five favorite movies in MST3K episodes. And so we wanted to, uh, to go ahead and do those, our top fives. So, uh, Nikki, if you want to do your number five, we'll get this sure. underway. All right, my uh, number five is from season 10. It's Girl in the Gold Boots. And uh, my criteria <laughs> for um, my criteria kind of included rewatchability, both as MST and as the movie itself. Um, also, kind of the overall like feeling it left me with, um, and just some of the fun that they were able to have with the riffs in the movie. And there's just there's some moments. So the story is basically, there's this chick that has a dead-end job. A guy comes into this um, restaurant she works in, says, hey, you know, I want you to come to Hollywood with me and be a go-go dancer. And 
she leaves and goes with them, and uh, she ends up basically being a glorified stripper. And it, it feels very Showgirl-esque, like a prequel to Showgirls. Yes. And it's just, oh, God, it, it's it's so, like, she is Naomi from, or Nomi from uh, Showgirls, only several years previous to that. Um, and in the, the, um, the little segments in between the movie, there's one where Crow is dancing, and you only see... Um, his legs and these gold boots <laughs> and then servo is throwing dollar bills at him and it is just so damn funny i laugh I, my ass off every time i mean the the best part of that one is, the best part of that host segment is mike in all of his horror yeah. <laughs> that that like th- that episode is is fantastic that movie is hysterical and oh, it is. yeah they see it's amazing that they did not sue for copyright infringement. Oh, 100%. Uh, for, for striptease. Because, yeah, it's... <laughs> I mean, literally, it's just instead of, like, racially stereotypical boyfriend, it's, father, you know, drunk dad as oh, yeah. the abusive person in her life that she wants to get away from. And then... Yeah, and then we throw in, like, wannabe... Bob Dylan, who's, who's <laughs> tagging along for the ride, is like a we'll get around to it eventually love interest. <laughs> and there's so many little weird bits, like they go for uh, like a dune ride. This movie yes. is, I mean, it's I've, obviously MST episodes are cut to a certain length, but one of the one of the key points, and you know that they probably were ju- just doing it to fill time, but they go on this really long dune buggy ride in the movie itself, and you look at it and go. You, you couldn't spend more time developing plot. Yeah. There's this whole side thing with, like, um, drug addiction, and it just, you can see it's trying to do big messages, but either didn't have the budget or didn't have the, the writers to make it good. Yeah, well, they they have that, the, I mean, the, the romantic male lead, his big whole thing is that he's running, he's basically on the run as a way of trying to dodge the draft. Exactly. So you have well, the, and it was done in the 60s, too, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but you have a potential, like, legitimately interesting storyline there, or character s- stuff going on there, and, yeah, they they just don't. <laughs> it, I will say, too, when um, Brain Guy, uh, at the end, he's trying to entice this <laughs> inspector guy that comes to... Um, <laughs> The certify Pearl Forester's Pearl. castle yeah. to do a... Sorry, go ahead. To certify Pearl, yeah. Yep, exactly. And uh, Brain Guy comes out, he's got his hood on, he's got these gold um, fur-lined gloves and this super short gold miniskirt and boots. And it is just... Bill Corbett has great legs. Like, it's incredible. <laughs> he, he he does, yeah. But it, and it's also just funny in the sense that basically both of his characters in that episode stripped. Uh, you're right. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah, both both of his characters, Brain Guy and Crow, were, were strippers in that episode. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, if you're going to do with one, you might as well do with both. True. Very true. They both have great legs, so that's, that's the most important thing to me. Yes, yes. Cannot disagree. <laughs> so, so, so that was your number five. Uh, my, my number five is... Uh, also from the sci-fi years, uh, season eight, it is I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Oh, great movie. This, I mean, this movie is, 
so much about the time period it was in. Written by someone older than any of the characters in the movie. Because it's a bunch of teens and middle-aged people all trying to use slang at the time period. And it being awkward every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Complete, Complete with... The, the detective character, who's easily one of the best characters in the movie, at one point literally looks at um, Michael Landon and goes, yeah, that's right, hide behind jive talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's one, of the, like, it's one of those movies where they, you know, they, they play with, you know, they play with some mental health stuff in it. In in the fifties, which is kind of impressive. Um, besides movies like uh, the Snake Pit, the, like movies, you know, th- that was a much more serious movie. But to have a, a horror movie at that time period deal with something like mental health in in a way that was honestly kind of respectful was was kind of impressive. Um, it it has you know it it's it's very cliche in in its handling of a werewolf, but there's really not a lot of originality to werewolves, unfortunately. Right. Um, well, unless you go the the Twilight route, you're kind of out of luck in that particular respect. Yeah, unless you go Twilight, which don't <laughs> just don't do it. But the other thing is this movie. The movie actually has a pretty cool, uh, a pretty cool evil scientist villain to it, um, that I actually really like. But he and the the detective character have a scene together, and it's a legitimately good scene. It's actually legit. It's legitimately well written, well acted. Um, I watch that scene and I go, if you showed me just this scene, I would be shocked that the majority of this movie is 45-year-olds pretending to be (laughs) 16-year-olds. Yelling, yelling slang at each other. (laughs) Well, and it goes to show that even, like, bad, like, not bad, but, but these kind of schlocky movies can have those moments. They're not just you know, semi-okay makeup and, you know, stereotypes. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was dime a dozen, unfortunately, when you, when you're, the stars aligned perfectly in the, like, post-30s world of making monster movies. Uh, yeah. It was very rare to have something that, that just landed, the, you know, stuck the landing really well. But um, this movie definitely came close. Oh yeah. You know this this movie without question came close. Uh, also, this movie has a weird obsession with uh, hating milk. That oh, about is that. just fantastic, <laughs> um, and is it, it's also incredibly unsubtle. <laughs> I don't think there's much about the fifties as far as these kind of movies. They 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 hit you over the head frequently. Well, I I think it's safe to say the 50s in general were not subtle given all the uh the shorts from the 50s that we've seen 
oh, yeah. in in these movies. Uh, yeah, there's the fifties were not a subtle time period. Um, yeah, yeah. Saying saying that the fifties were a calm, civil time based off of what you assume compared to what clearly was going on. It, it's <laughs> it's kind of like when people just look at Woodstock and declare it the summer of love and try not to look behind them at what was really going on. Oh, um, 100%. But yeah, so that's that was that's my number five. Uh, what is your number four? I'm going back to season one, and um, it's actually... I Season one is kind of a mixed bag for me. Like, there's a lot of great episodes, but they're not obviously to the level that you get with seasons, you know, when you hit the heyday, you know, like seasons three through about six. I guess that's what I see in my mind. But, um, that's fair. Moon Zero Two, I absolutely love. From the get-go, you get that Trump joke, and that's the fact that that still sticks today. I just adore. <laughs> it's um, yeah. Go ahead. No, it's again like we mentioned earlier. It's amazing how many of the jokes still hold up to this day in in these show in these episodes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so the story is basically um, there's a. There's a colony on the moon. It's pretty well established. Um, there's a guy that uh, goes um, basically looking for space trash. He gets recruited to, to pull down this meteor that's made of sapphire. Um, they get stuck on the far side of the moon. So it's a weird gangster thing. Like, and everything is, and it's made, it's alluded to in the movie or in the segments itself. But everything is like Moonopoly or, you know, moon juice or moon whiskey <laughs> or whatever it might be. And there's so many great little moments like that. And the costuming in this movie is just insane. There's, um, and they make fun of every single costume. And it's incredible. Um, and then there's, um, there's a space battle. So someone turns up the gravity and everything kind of goes super slow-mo while they're punching each other and kicking each other. And they recreate that in one of the uh, host segments. And it's just the best thing in the world. I I need to revisit this episode because it's it's been a while since I watched it. But yeah, every single everything that you're mentioning even in my brain, I'm going, oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's um there's another part where um they get off on the far side of the moon to go track down this um this meteor where the meteor is going to land, and all of them have different colored suits on, and so it's like raspberry yellow, lemony lemony lemon, and all this other stuff, and it's just there's so many little moments like that and it's I think for me it was where it really hit its stride as far as what MST becomes at that point mm-hmm. like the the jokes for me just started to land a little bit better with this movie and I can't tell you exactly why but it, I don't know it just seemed like it hit better at that point well and I think I think any movie that includes people out in space is worth watching on MST3K because oh, yeah. it's worth noting that they take a little bit of everything that they that they watch in these movies and incorporate it into just the the basic goings on within the within the show oh, like absolutely. There, there's like the physics that you see in a lot of especially like 50s and 60s space movies that's the physics that the show lives off of uh, when it comes to being out in outer space. Oh, exactly. And that's, it definitely, yeah, just that, that part of it, it, it plays back in and, you know, it, everything, 
all the inspirations from the 50s and 60s do get translated down, you know, 30 years to when, or well, 35 years to when this came on board, so. Yeah, but yeah, this Moon Zero Two, this is definitely the, the start of that, of helping them kind of develop the the laws and the world building of the Satellite of Love and Deep 13 and all of that. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, what is your uh, number four? Uh, my number four, uh, I cannot remember the season off the top of my head. I think it's, I'm going to say season five, but I'm probably wrong. It is Village of the Giants. Oh, great movie. Um, this is, I mean, outside of the the general sexism of the film that <laughs> is unfortunately rampant because of the time period that it was in. percent. Oh, um, well, and it's just one of those, it's one of those movies. Yeah. But this is, I mean, honestly, this is a legitimately fantastic premise. They, obvious, like these days it wouldn't hold up as a premise at all, but for the time period... The premise is perfect, and the the plot for the the plot for this movie as a whole is Ron Howard no longer lives with Andy Griffin and has become a scientist. Um, <laughs> I might be con- I might have read into the con- contact sub subtext of this film in my own way, but he creates <laughs> this potion that makes things bigger. And these traveling ruffians, ruffians, yeah, traveling ruffians steal and take this stuff, becoming giants themselves and terrorizing this small town that is made up pretty much just of teenagers. I would agree with that. I don't, I, every single time I watch the movie, by the time I get to the end, I go, Did was there an adult in this movie? Was there an adult the sheriff, in this town? I, I, I think the sheriff and like maybe like a shop owner or something. Yeah, but yeah, by and large, yeah. it, it is all adult. Well, it's, it, it's all adults, but they're pretending to be teenagers. Yes. And Ron Howard is like a 10-year-old. Yeah. Who's may or may not be a perv. <laughs> Um, it really just depends on each line reading for certain lines, uh, whether or not he got what he was actually supposed to be saying. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun film. It's stupid as all get out, but in a way that it kind of has to be, to be tolerable. The, if this, if Village of the Giants took itself seriously in any capacity, they wouldn't even have been able to put it on MST because there would have been no making fun of it. It just would not have been able to, like, get the jokes out there. Yeah. See, and I never, like, I remember watching this as a kid, and even to this day, I never, they always seemed like they were kind of always winking at the camera. Just the premise of the movie alone, the giant geese... Like the thing with the with, with the um, giant uh, goose legs. I mean, that whole bit. I can see what you're saying, but it always came off to me as pretty cheeky. It no, it it is, but it ha- like it it's very cheeky. But if it wasn't, 
If it was not uh, yeah. purposefully cheeky and aware of itself, it would be unwatchable. I mean, literally, when the, the ruffians become gigantic, the first thing that happens during that sequence is we cut to the hottest of the girls who conveniently has her arm already in place to cover her oh, yeah. breasts when yeah. her shirt magically rips off. <laughs> and you can see it rip off, too. It was clearly built to do that. Yeah, it was clearly a pull-away shirt, and she's already got her hand perfectly in place so that way they can have as much breast as that time period would allow for whatever demographic this movie was going after. And it's so, like, the fact that that's the first thing that you experience is so comedic and tongue-in-cheek and <laughs> and so, yeah, giga- like, you're literally thinking that they're going to cut to one of the boys and he's just going to look at the camera and do, like, an, oh, yeah, nod. <laughs> you're waiting for it. You're just waiting for it. Oh, totally. It, it strikes me as, like, not in the same way because they tended to be a little bit more innocent, but, like... Those beach comedies with, like, um, what was her name? Um, Annette Funicello and some of those. Like, it, it yes. struck me as one of those, like, those level of movies. Very, very beach blanket bingo style. We we know what we're being, and we aren't sure if we care. Exactly. That There's a scene where um, they're they're being attacked by, or they, they come out, and um, the all the teenagers, quote-unquote, in the town come out to try and take them down, and, like, um... I think it's one guy on a motorcycle tries to start going around um, oh, a yeah. pair of a pair of fake legs, and they're so clearly fake. It's it's awesome. <laughs> yes, and it's and, and it should also be noted that along with the fact that Ron Howard is in the movie, um, one of the the main ruffians is played by Bo Bridges. Oh yeah, I forgot so ninety percent of the movie. He has his general look of, wait, what? On his face. <laughs> that you that you generally expect from Bo Bridges. You, you kind of love him for it, but yeah, that sort of like, huh? Sort of look that he has on his face. I, yeah, so, um, so that's my number four. What is your number three? Number three for me is Fire Maidens from Outer Space. <laughs> <laughs> You're, and, um, you're going swinging with this. I love it. Oh, yeah. Well, again, I'm choosing these just as much um, from the, the segment perspective as I am the movie itself. Because the movie itself is so... Basically, um, uh, a group of astronauts go to, I believe it's Mars? They, they go some some Earth-like world. Yes. And there's a guy with a crap ton of girls or crap ton of daughters... And they go hardcore for these guys. Like they, they want, they want to get married and they want to have kids. Basically, like that's basically the premise of the entire movie. There's yeah. nothing more to it than that, really. <laughs> and uh, but the the in between segments, um, in the oh sorry. No, you're. Uh, I, that was just me coughing. Was okay. Nothing exciting. In the, okay. <laughs> in the movie, um, or in the se- in the host segments, um. So there's a there's a short that talks about is no I'm thinking the wrong one um oh god did that one have okay anyway I'm just gonna skip that and just go to um so during the host segments there is um uh Crow's new best friend and his name is Timmy and he's basically a black version of Crow which um, oh yes from a 
real life perspective they use in the theater so they're all black mm-hmm. they, they they're basically silhouetted already and um it becomes uh timmy continues to do like all kinds of bad stuff gets um crow or gets uh, servo into trouble ultimately um like destroys him and then ta- like like basically covers him in slime and attaches him to a wall and then joel comes out of the of the um the doors to the theater and he says let them go you bitch and then he proceeds to send timmy out into outer space and that is such a cool arc i love it oh yeah isn't he and isn't he wearing his drum set that is mirrored off of the the aliens exoskeleton armor i don't think so i think he just has a mop actually i okay i again this is one of those this is one of those episodes that i watched a few years ago when I was going on a massive, like, watching as many episodes as I could binge. Um, but I haven't watched recently, so I might just be blending different parts oh, no, of different no, episodes together. I, I wouldn't be surprised, but to get through those doors, um, it's been a while since I watched it too, but I'm pretty sure it was like, it was a mop or it was something like that, because he goes out the airlock and he ends up with the Mads. And like, hey, I found a friend! I I would not be shocked if it was just Joel coming out with like a push broom or a mop. <laughs> well, he is a janitor. It's, I mean, it's it yeah, it's sense. very on point for him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just um, that whole arc—the fact that it's one continuous story throughout the entire bit—and to actually see, not so much the swearing aspect, but to see Joel go hardcore, you know, keep away from my from my kids, basically. Yeah. I just I love that moment. It's just such a cool moment uh, yeah it's it it was always fun to watch joel's re- react behavior with them like he was their dad oh totally um those that that stuff was always great there was a little bit of that with mike as well but not as much um but and, and i had always i had always heard that um like joel was like the dad um Mike was always like the buddy, and then Jonah was like the kid next door that wanted to be cool with the bots. I can see it. I always kind of viewed it as Joel was the dad, Mike was the uncle, and Jonah is is their cousin. That that makes sense to him, and that that follows. That makes sense. So I I, I always kind of viewed it in that sense, and there's still that sort of the cousin who wants to be cool like them sort of mentality. He's like cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch. The, Wow, do you not like Jonah that much? No, no, no. no, no. I just, I, oh, no, I, I love Jonah. I think he's awesome. Like, I have I have respect for all of them, but just, like, you talk about the cousin, that's where my brain goes, and I don't know why. Nope, I, do what you gotta do, I guess. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that, that totally disrespect. I, I did not mean disrespect in that way. I, I, oh, God. It's the only cousin I could think of. It was, it was an easy joke. I'm so... No, no, it's it's a good joke, and it, you know it goes to show you you can you know, it's a good riff on my terrible joke. <laughs> All right, so what's your number uh, number three? Uh, yeah, my number three my, for my number three, I'm returning to season eight with a movie that resulted in a lawsuit against Michael Bay. And that movie is Parts the Clonus Horror. Ooh, good choice. Now, for those of you who have, uh, who don't know what this film is, 
if you remember, there was a movie called The Island with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. And the plot of both movies was there is a place somewhere unspecified with all of these young, attractive, physically fit people where occasionally they would earn the ability to go out into the world until one of them discovers we are actually clones of famous rich people and what's actually happening is once we're in peak physical condition we are killed and frozen so that way when they need new organs they can harvest them from us and so he escapes to try to put a stop to it and yeah literally the people who made parts of the clone is horror when the island came out they sued them for ripping off their movie which they did uh because at one point Michael Bay literally had to start taking and ripping off of movies that were on Mystery Science Theater 3000 to come up with ideas <laughs> before he started doing the Transformers movies. Well, um, you know, sometimes you, uh, you know, you can only have so many explosions. That doesn't quite make up for, uh, for plot. Oh, he still threw a bunch of explosions into that movie. That movie has oh, yeah. a ridiculous amount. Like, that, in that movie, they're constantly in areas with lots of gasoline and steel rebar. <laughs> Isn't that just everyday life, though? I thought every place had concrete and, and gasoline. Uh, well, I don't have... I guess so. I have a lot of steel rebar, not as much explosives where oh, I am. That's fair. That's fair. Um, See, mine goes the opposite. I've got more more explosives, less rebar. Oh. Uh, uh, that must be loud. Yeah, it can be. It can be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, this... You know, Parts of the Clonus Horror is... It is a fun companion piece to like that era of you know the Manchurian candidate and just that era of like 70s paranoia in the government and the upper class just that sort of that was that was trendy at the time and it's the it's the ridiculous extreme very true um the lead of the movie is insufferable he is behaving like what you assume models at a beauty pageant are behaving like, which is to say flighty, breathy, and vapid, um, to the point where it is ridiculous that he is not immediately caught and dealt with. Uh, you, the, but he is, um, you know, it's, with the exception of him, the the core concept is great. It's got Peter Graves as a villain, which is kind of fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Uh, and very, very off-brand for him in a kind of a fun way. The ending <laughs> is very 70s, negative view of the world sci-fi. Um, so it's, you know, it's very much sitting there going, oh, wow, nothing's going well for anybody, is it? <laughs> Um, but well, the, you know the the time definitely reflected that kind of feel too. So well, and it's one of those movies. It's one of those movies where if you, you know, weren't ripping, it, pretending that nobody's watched it, and actually making an, you know, making it, acknowledging that it was a remake, you could legitimately make that movie again these days, with and have it be social commentary on 
the healthcare system, on oh, yeah. um, on the class system in America, and have it be a, a an intensely disturbing modern horror sci-fi film. Um, but at the time period that, that the movie was made, it was very much the like paranoia. Um, don't trust the government in any capacity because they're evil and they're going to steal your kidneys sort of, of crazy, <laughs> you know, like tinfoil hat paranoia era yeah. of um, of thinking that led to movies having that same mentality. Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's one thing, too. The movies of an era are definitely re- reflective of what's going on in that time as well. Like, you mm-hmm. can look at any era and have that same feel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. I was going to say, I haven't, I've seen this one once. It's been quite a long time since I've seen it, so I'm glad that you brought this one up. But I was going to say, if, if you didn't mention the fact that you chose this because it had Peter Graves in it, I was going to say, now come on. Peter Graves is like, if for one movie not to make it in here that had Peter Graves, it would be sad and wrong. It'd be, it'd be disturbing, but um, I, I couldn't bring it in my heart to, to put beginning of the end on, on my list. I don't blame you one bit. <laughs> I, c- I couldn't bring myself to put grasshoppers on postcards into my list. I just couldn't do I, it. I could, but, uh, but I roll a little weird, too. <laughs> oh, God. All right, so, uh, so what's, your, what's your number two? Now, I dove into the Netflix territory with this next one. Okay. Um, so, for my experience, um, I, I, I watched almost everything in reruns. So to be able to see something fresh and new that no one else had seen, Reptilicus was, I still watch that and get shivered or get goosebumps (laughs) when they do the countdown and just that whole opening segment and you hear the song kick up and it was just, I can't explain it other than to say I was giddy and I don't get giddy often. So I I don't know what that says, but I just, there's so much about it that I loved uh, you know, it was a fresh start. It was it was a lot of what made the original, you know, the old series good, but it had a, like it it had the jokes because no one really knew what was coming with it. Yeah. And it had jokes from excuse me from this from movies from the '60s. It had uh, gaming stuff. It covers the gambit. <clears throat> excuse me for just a second here. Um, weird hiccup thing. Um, so the story is basically there's a piece of a monster that's brought up in uh, Denmark or it's brought up in the Arctic by, and it's a Denmark, it's a, it's a Danish movie and it's brought up and brought to a lab and it regenerates into this giant creature. And it was kind of, um, Denmark's answer to Godzilla basically. And it was so cheesy, but it was such a fun movie. Um, and just the, there's a song in there and we talked about music earlier, but there's a song talking about, um, Oh, what was it called? Uh, shoot. The hell was the song called? Apologies. Um, no worries. Every oh, every cut. So, um, you know, given MST's history with music, one of the best songs um, of the new era um, was "Every Country Has a Monster," and it was this just incredibly laid out um, piece of music, and it was such a cool piece. So, I just it, it sits up there for me, and I like I say, I watch it, and I still get goosebumps, and I don't know. That's one of those things that just it sets it for me. It's rewatchability. It's just amazing yeah and that that song is a good companion piece to the godzilla genealogy bop from oh, absolutely. The, from the joel era um well and and joel was a leading figure i mean he was the producer on this you can feel his hand and even though 
you know, you had Mike in the middle and there's a lot of acknowledgement of him. It's nice to see that, that kind of Joel feel in a modern era, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you on that. Don't disagree I mean, the with you on that at all. I mean, the season wasn't perfect, and there were... It was probably too many riffs on top of riffs, but the, the heart of it was still there. Mm-hmm. So. I, I think the biggest flaw... I think... I think above all else, the biggest flaw with the Netflix era was they let too many people come in and out guest writing for random episodes. Very so true. they didn't have a consistent writing staff that really drove the the process. Cause it, I, definitely, like, it, it definitely didn't have the same feel from episode to episode, and I don't know if it needed the arc. Probably not. Um, but I know, like, I think Joel McHale helped write, like, one, maybe two episodes, um, and some other, like, I know that they had some episodes that had some guest writers, like, some celebrities come in and help write, and some that didn't and things so i i think that i think that more than anything else hurt the netflix era not saying it was bad but it no no but it definitely it didn't it lacked some of what made the original so good it didn't it's it wasn't as well established it didn't it it, they were they were playing around with a lot of new stuff trying to because all of the dialogue for instance was recorded previous and then they just had them in the studio or in the uh theater um, you know, doing the silhouettes and kind of reacting. Yeah. And to not have that part of it was, I don't know, it, it, it was different. It was a little detached. I, as they went along, they got better. I mean, as any show does. Yeah. But. Yeah, I mean, it's, for me, like, Joe, it's, it's interesting if you watch, like, the, the best way, if you're, if you're going to bring yourself to comparing the Riff Track uh, MST reunion special is the way to do it. Oh, absolutely. Because you literally have Joel and Jonah teamed together riffing a short about barbers. Oh, that was, that was, it was really interesting to see them do their thing. It was, um, yeah, it was, also, it was very, okay. very interesting because there's like, I, I, I don't think it can be denied that with Joel and he said, Joel, very much like John Stewart with The Daily Show, set the tone of how to do everything. Mm-hmm. And there was an organicness, like he was literally just saying this stuff. Whereas Jonah would then do a riff after him, and it felt very rehearsed. It felt practiced. It felt like it didn't feel like he was just saying it. It felt like he was delivering, doing a line. Yep. That's very, very true. I would agree. They And I think part of that owes to the fact that Jonah is, like, he he was a, like, he was doing a little bit of stand-up, but he was mainly a podcaster and, and doing stuff like that, whereas Joel was a stand-up comedian, where even if you've rehearsed it a 50 million times, it's always, you naturally give everything an organic flow and feel to it, not a line reading, because you've got to be prepared to adjust given the audience. Oh yeah. Well, and you have to deal with hecklers. You have to have that, that list in the back of your head of things that could possibly go wrong. If you yeah. see someone in the crowd, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, uh for, I, we're up to my number two now, and that is, Woo-hoo. uh, going to what, the cast themselves has said is probably the best movie 
in quality that they ever did, and that is The Magic Sword. Ooh, great movie. Absolutely incredible. This, I mean, there is no denying that uh, Sherlock Holmes staple Basil Rathbone is clearly not feeling it. <laughs> there is there there is no denying that like I there is no denying that somebody that he, that that he that works for him that gets him work was trying to convince him that this was the transition of his career into doing something else to doing something different. He should have fired them. um but overall like i mean the plot of this film is boy is in love with girl and because we're talking about you know back when movies being in color was an exciting new thing he's basically been stalking her and is watching her be naked at one point in the movie (laughs) Well, that's uh, what they did back in the Middle Ages. I mean, that's just uh, how they did stuff. Apparently you just, yeah, apparently you just watched people while they were naked, if you like, <laughs> had a crush on them. But he does, you know, so he's fallen in love with her. She gets kidnapped by an evil wizard, as you do. And so with the help of a bunch of magical items, including the titular sword, and uh, a whole merry band of badly portrayed stereotypes. <laughs> uh, he ventures out with douchebag night. Um, with evil douchebag night. And they, they go out to do battle to try to win back this princess. And it's a... It's overall... The parts of it that are straightforward are solid tropes of the fantasy genre that are tropes because they work they are usually they are usually the baseline that you wrap something more interesting up in around and with with this one it's no exception you've you know the the stuff that's different about this one is legitimately interesting and this is i mean this is Bert, I, I think this is my second Bird Eye Gordon in, in my list after Village of the Giants, because I believe that was also Bird Eye Gordon. Yep, that it was. And technically, third one to talk about, because we talked about beginning of the end. Um, <laughs> Very true. I have a weird... I, I do legitimately have a... This show has put me in the realm of, if it's a Bird Eye Gordon film, I will at least humor the idea of watching it. Um Definitely between him and Corman. You definitely, those are the top two. Yes. Bert I, Bert I. Gordon was to fantasy what Corman was to horror. True. Very, um, very true. To be, like, but, I mean, this movie, it's... The, the majority of the performances are insufferable, <laughs> but the ideas that they are trouncing through are fantastic. Oh yeah. Well, they, they did a great job with different things like the effects too. Like it was it's a mm-hmm. well put together piece. Yeah, the visual effects are, are quite good for the time period and for the budget that you know this movie had to have because it was Bird Eye Gordon. Um 
And the, but the movie also has a great sense of humor to it. Um, and, and I mean, nothing encapsul- encapsulates that more than the fact that in the opening credits for the film, they were, they got cheeky and they credited a dragon wrangler <laughs> in the opening credits of the film, which is fantastic. It is such a cute little way of going, look, we know, just have fun. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the movie is also, like, the way they decide they can kill the French knight is, what if we put a beautiful woman out here singing a French children's song? The fact that it's a beautiful woman, he'll easily be able to be killed because of that. (laughs) (laughs) And if not for our main character showing up, it would have worked. Yes. Because, again, lots of, you know, uh, a Scottish accent that makes you feel like Mike Myers' Shrek 1 makes him actually (laughs) from Scotland. Um, A German one that makes you you feel like Bird Eye Gordon wasn't quite over World War II at the time. Um, (laughs) and, And lots of other ones that are just kind of painful. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's, I mean, it's very much, it's, it's kind of like if you read the Hobbit before you've like seen the, the new movies where it's kind of hard to, to remember like, okay, which dwarf is which. Yeah. The, the magic swords very, cause you know, his, his knights keep dying on him with each of the challenges that they go through. And you really just have to accept after the first time that you're not going to remember who was who, and it really doesn't matter. <laughs> so it's okay to just be like, oh, someone died? Was it our lead or the douche knight? No? Okay. Let's move on. Was it the one in green or the one in blue? <laughs> <laughs> Which bad accent was it? We don't remember? Okay. If it was I, one of the three really awful ones. If I sit here and I don't notice anyone speaking in that terrible accent anymore, I'll know it's because he's dead. Okay. I can work <laughs> with that. Now, I forget with this one. Did Basil Rathbone have a really terrible hat? Or am he, I thinking Jack Palance from Cave Dwellers? Well, uh, Jack Palance wasn't in Cave Dwellers. He was in uh, oh, he Outlaw was? of Gore. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, Getting my he, I, he did have a terrible hat in that movie. Basil Rathbone, he has a hat that I think is phenomenal because it's just, it, it is, it is literally like someone put strawberry ice cream with glitter on his head. (laughs) That is the hat and it is fantastic and was probably his first realization that this was not going to go his way career wise. (laughs) Well, you, you take someone that was such a master of so many movies, and then, yeah, I, yeah, he, he, it's like Leslie Nielsen doing the uh, uh, scary movies. Uh, you know, one's a really great actor pulled down to, and not to say the, the Magic Sword is like scary movie, but it, or scary movie trilogy or the series, but uh, just in that realm of you, like how far you've fallen kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Sad, sadly, sadly, some truth to that. Although yeah. I'd say, I'd say, Leslie Nielsen in Scary Movie 3 is still better than Leslie Nielsen in 2001 A Space Travesty. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. A movie Although, with far too appropriate a title to it. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, any of those spoof movies, God, God help, God help them. Oof. Yeah. I will also add with this one, Estelle Winwood. I think she's one of my favorite parts of this movie. <laughs> See, I Estelle is great, but Estelle in this movie has two hype men that are yeah. the chillest hype men ever. They are these bald albino twins. And everything they say is said with such regret to it. They <laughs> literally, she'll ask them, she'll ask them a question and they'll go, no, master. <laughs> yes, master. He's a boy, master. That's how they talk the entire movie. They are the chillest hype men on the planet. Well, with, with, uh, with a voice and a look like hers, I think you have to have relatively chill hype men. Probably. She probably only can take so much. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, like, Crow's love of her. I just, I love that yes. whole set of lines. Yeah, Crow falls in love with her, and it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> uh, much better than his love of Kim Cattrall. Oh, yeah. Though, apparently, she actually wrote Trace Bill U at one point. I can believe that. I yeah. can absolutely believe that. All right, so we have arrived at our number ones. So, uh, Nikki, what is your number one? Should I do a drum roll? If you want to. <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't think a drum roll is necessary. Okay. Uh, my number one is the Puma Man. Or Puma Man. <laughs> I, I had to. I just... Oh and my there's goodness. so much there's so much that's good about this movie. So it's from season nine. It, it stars uh, Donald Pleasance and just uh, it is such a weird movie. He would it's not like, want you admitting that though. Hmm? <laughs> he would not want you telling people that he stars in this movie, no. <laughs> there's no way. Uh, no, absolutely not. Well, he's a scenery chewer in this sucker. Holy shit. It kinda um, has to. <laughs> though absolutely. The the basic premise of this movie is um this guy is chosen, so this giant, like, spaceship comes to Earth and bestows upon this one guy the power of, all the powers of a puma, which apparently um, <laughs> include the ability to fly very weirdly against rear-projected uh, city footage, um, to wear khaki pants and an interesting shirt, and to whine like a little bitch. And uh, yeah. he has to... He has to take down John Donald Pleasance, who is trying to take over the world through use of this um, magic mask, and it creates um, uh, model heads, really terribly modeled heads of anyone yes. that he possesses. And uh, he can basically voodoo doll them to death. So, this. Uh... Yeah. This movie <laughs> made me realize that I apparently know nothing about Pumas. <laughs> Because there's like one, there's one power that he has that I immediately went, oh yeah, I bet that's a puma. And that's the ability to fall from, from great heights. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it should be noted that his mentor character and the villains, all of them are doing the exact same thing when trying to hunt down the puma man. They are all grabbing men who it might be and throwing them out of the top of tall buildings until finally he survives the fall so it's known that he's it. 
Well, you know, I mean, how else would you figure out? I mean, isn't that how most great heroes are found? Well, I mean... You just, you know, getting rid of the trash. I mean, given his amazing whining powers, I feel like you could just constantly invite him to dine at a restaurant and then tell him that it's going to be another half hour for his table. Because he, seem, like, he seems like the kind of person who would be really, really upset about that and whine about it for hours. So, oh, yeah. I, like, I could totally see that being just as plausible a way to do it. Plus then, you know, surrounded by knives. There so, you go. You're all set. Well, another power of the Puma is to be surrounded by cutlery. Yes. Oh, and his strong attraction, strong attraction to women who are violently against closing their eyes to any amount. <laughs> true. Very, the, very The true. romantic interest in this movie, it's literally like she opened her eyes as wide as she could at one point, and they stuck there. <laughs> um, and impure, you know, everything trying in some capacity to be like James Bond at the time. I also love the fact that Immediately, as soon as everything's done, everything's good, the world is safe, his immediate thought is, I'm going to grab you, we're going to fly into the air, and we're going to have sex in the air. Oh, yeah. Well, and it was at, um, wasn't it at Stonehenge? Which is like, why are you at Stonehenge? Yeah. yeah. There's some poor tourist who is just going to be so horrified. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're going to, like, you're going to be walking around Stonehenge admiring the master the majesty you're going to step on two piles of clothes confused look directly up into the sky and be directly underneath something terrible exactly exactly well and you hope it's not a gigantic christmas ball that actually turns out to be a spaceship yes the the um the torture ball from the first star wars movie has become sentient and 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 both creates the superhero of the Puma Man, uh, whose job is to protect seemingly the Native Americans of this area, which we only see one, so Puma Man's done a terrible job. He's absolutely atrocious. Um, But this alien ball creature is also the ones responsible for the golden mask of mind control, so, basically, they created the Puma Man to cover up their own mistakes. <laughs> well, you know, he's he's bitching so loudly. How could you, you know, you, you don't hear anything else. That's true. That's very true. I will also say, I, you look at, I'm going to completely slaughter his name, Vadinho, the, 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 his, his guide, I guess. Yeah. He would make a better Puma Man than Puma Man. I don't know why they didn't just go with him. Like he, he's, he's so much better at everything. Without the ability to fly or any of the other supposed powers of the Puma, he is constantly better than him. It it's it's that whole white savior thing of it's yeah. gotta be a white guy. That's very true. Plus, you know, would he look as good in a, in the Puma Man belt? I mean, I, I felt like the entire time the Denhill was, like, chasing Puma Man around trying to get him to put on his belt the same way a mom would chase a kid around trying to get him to put on his pants, you know, or, you know, a coat or whatever. I think we have to just be honest with ourselves in the fact that even RuPaul could not pull off that belt. No, no, if, definitely not. 
if if you combine the powers of RuPaul and Tim Gunn, you could still not make that belt work. That's how much that belt doesn't work. No, no, that was like a back alley choice. Like they're like, okay, we're down to like the last day before we start shooting. We need something. Just grab a bunch of trash out of this dumpster, put it all together. We'll we'll make it work. The glue will dry and we'll be good to go. That sounds about right. That sound that sounds very on point. It's very like. If, if you handed that belt to Vince McMahon, even he would go, I'm not putting this on my wrestlers. I, I, res- I respect them more than that. Oh, damn. That's, that's saying something right there. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm proud of you for going there. I appreciate the reference. And it goes to show that we can be as um, wide in our references as Mystery Science Theater can. I try to be. I always try I'm to be. I'm proud of you. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> the other thing I will say is, um, in the the seg or in the host segments, there's one where they have um, Roger Whitaker and they have his head. Oh yes. That head looks better than anything they did in the actual movie that had a budget, mind you. I I will say, knowing the way that the show is, there was there is still even to this day having seen it knowing. Every single time I watch that host segment, there's a small part of me that gets uncomfortable because I feel like that that head is about to move. A little bit, yeah. It definitely has that. I don't know if it was like a like a, a styling head dummy from for, a, for from like a cosmetology school or what it was, but yeah, it's they, it's a little a little real. <laughs> they zoom and focus in on it in such a way that you feel like it's about to do something and it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Um yeah. But yeah, beyond that though, fantastic, absolutely, fantastic. absolutely, just absolutely scary. Yes, very much. <laughs> All so right. what's your number one? My my number one is going uh, to the final season, to season ten, uh, for the what I think is the bravest movie they ever did on the series, and that is Hamlet. Ooh. To that was a boring ass movie, but an excellent choice. I I am a huge lover of Shakespeare, uh, and and I love and I love Hamlet. I love the story of Hamlet. I have, um, like, I, I'm looking up just to double check right now, and I have, like, three or four versions of Hamlet on my DVD shelf right now. Now, do you have the copy with Mel Gibson basically making out with his mother? I used to. I uh, used to have the 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 one where. Glenn Close apparently gave birth to Mel Gibson when she was six, <laughs> which would be the only way she would be his mother. Um, yeah. Well, back in the day, things were a little different, I guess. Well, it's Zaffarelli, and Zaffarelli was always weird. His his Romeo and Juliet's weird as shit. But oh, I remember watching that in school. It was crazy weird. Yeah, but uh, this version is it's a 1960s uh, made-for-TV version for German television. And it's the the star whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, actually Max went Million on. Schnell? Yes, Maximilian Schell. Um, he actually went on to win an Oscar. Not for this, obviously, uh, <laughs> for his role in the film Judgment at Nuremberg. Oh, great movie! Uh, he he won an Oscar for his role in that film. Um, and he's one of those guys where if you IMDb him, there is some movie at some point in his career that you have seen and you have seen him in, and I bet you thought he was fantastic. Oh, yeah. And I would well, argue he's fantastic in this as well. 
Absolutely. Well, and it's it's one of those movies where your your source material is set. Yes. So what you choose to do with that source material is totally on you. But yeah, it, he did. He was the best part of this. He was, and I will say, because um, I mean, my father's an English teacher, so the first time we watched this episode, we were so excited because we could not wait to see what they were going to do. Uh, you know, we're we're a theater family, so the fact that like three jo- three riffs in, we're doing a Kiss Me Kate reference made us so happy. Um, nice. The the <clears throat> incest <clears throat> that <laughs> that riff is still very popular in my family uh, because it's it's subtle yet brilliant even though it doesn't seem brilliant subtle it's subtle and brilliant all at the same time um, I mean in it's terms of the understanding the reference too so. yeah in terms of the episode it's it's a brilliant episode partially due to the fact that at no point do they riff on the movie with the assumption that you've n- that you know nothing about Hamlet. Right. They assume everyone knows the story, everyone knows the characters, everyone knows the plot. Even if they're wrong, they assume it, and that works in their favor. But even just focusing within the movie itself, the one thing the movie does that I've never seen another production of Hamlet do was it made all of his big monologues as inner monologues that we hear as voiceover. Oh, that is cool. Because normally, every normally whenever he has, you know, whether it's to be or not to be, or um, oh, but this two two solid flesh, you know, mm-hmm. any of the any any of them, as long as they're not spoken to someone else, if he's having some big monologue, any production of Hamlet that you ever watch, everyone magically just leaves. This one, they kept all the people in the room, and it's all an inner monologue as he's just trying to navigate through all these bodies. And it's actually quite brilliant. And Uh, if you think about it, that makes sense. Like, those, the way that's done is probably the way that it should have been done, or the way that maybe Shakespeare meant it to be. Well, I can, I mean, I could see when Shakespeare wrote it, given the fact that you really wouldn't have had much in the realm of extras... You know, you wouldn't really have, you wouldn't really have players just playing guests at a party, because sure. um, all the all the main all the name characters in all of those scenes always give a reason and then leave. But then usually they just have all the party goers or whatnot leave as well. Um, but in this, they had the the anyone who didn't say they had to leave and left stay. And he does his internal mo- monologues, his internal monologues, and it's co- it's fantastic. It works really well. Um, but he's good. The guy who plays Claudius is actually quite good. Um, everyone else is give or take, and the the sets fine, and the pacing's what's horrific about it more than anything else. Yeah. Um, but there there are some very redeeming qualities to this. And again, Maximilian Schell's a great Hamlet. It's a shame he didn't get a chance to do it in a better circumstance. Yeah. Well, and maybe his experience was such with this where he just said, enough, I've I've played the role, I don't want to be uh, typecast as this, I'll move on to other things. 
Then he went to America and became evil German in a lot of stuff, yeah. though. Is <laughs> that was the only problem? Yeah, that, uh, that that does definitely play into things. You kind of do get typecast in that respect. But, well, uh, and his the time period that because he he showed up during the paranoid seventies, um, yeah. as a guy who was German. So uh, unfortunately, it, to, it led to playing some cliche evil German roles. In yeah. a lot of ways. Wrong place, wrong time kind of a deal. Yeah, unfortunate Just time, unfortunate place sort of thing. Yeah. But, again, he's he's a deserved Oscar winner. Um, one of one of many Oscar winners... One of, a, one of a handful of Oscar winners that they've had pre-Oscar win in movies on MST. Well, what was the movie that won an Oscar, but MST riffed on the cut down. Was it TV version of it? It was one of the outer space ones. Oh, um, um, it was their season four premiere. I cannot remember what the cut, the like sloppily cut version was. <laughs> That's a good way to state it. Cause it wasn't even that it was like an, a made for TV edit. It was some sort of weird, they edited two different movies together to make it seem like the, the A-list casts from these two movies were in one movie together, sort of thing. Um, I can't remember was what it was, though. But was it Space Travelers? Maybe. maybe. I, again, it was. I'm I'm 98% sure it was the season four premiere. I just can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But oh, no worries. I'm sorry. I didn't. I, yeah. I, I got thinking about that. It's like, no. ah, well, you oh. know. But yeah, they um, because yeah, uh, one of the movies that they did was the first movie that John Williams ever did a score for. Oh yeah. They they um, did her, his first film uh doing a score. I It's not Rebel Set. But it's it's along those it's one of those ones where it's bad side of the tracks people. I think it's the one where they all hold up in someone else's house and hold the people the people in the house hostage. Was it uh Kitten with a Whip? No, 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 no. It was it was either the holding up someone hostage in their... Yeah, it was the hold up someone hostage in their house and one of the people who's holding them hostage is supposed to actually be going out to start their big record deal. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, um, that oh, was... God. And that was John Williams' first movie doing a score. Um, wow. Revenge of the Creature that we spoke about earlier has a small no-name role that's in it for two minutes roughly and it is the first acting role of clint eastwood oh yeah um he was a, a lab assistant he's the lab assistant that absent-mindedly loses a mouse in his lab coat <laughs> uh to which at the end of his scene crow responds with this guy's bad this is his first and last movie <laughs> um well, that's like Jack Nicholson. I think his first role was in, um, or one of his first roles was Little, Sh the original Little Shop of Horrors. It was one of his first big roles. Was the original yeah. Corman Little Shop. He was the masochistic dentist patient. You know, just, it fit him well. I'll yeah, say it definitely fit him well. Small bit role, <laughs> but then he became famous, and so it was all about. It was all about him. It's like um, yeah. people think that uh, Popeye is Robin Williams' first movie. It actually wasn't. Really, he had a small role in this really, this weird, like, raunch sketch comedy movie where he was, he was a supporting in it, I think, as, like, the lawyer, a lawyer in one of the sketches. 
and um, his scenes were cut from the movie in its original theatrical release. And then he became famous, and they re-released the movie with his scenes back in it, marketing it as his first big movie. Interesting. Um, Good to know. I've learned so much tonight. Thank you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's never even gotten a DVD release. Mm. It's one of those movies that I bet sells for hundreds of dollars on VHS on eBay. Oh, I bet. Well, and VHS generally right now is, is big for yes. crazy reasons, so... <laughs> oh, yes. Well, More power to them, though. Who, hey, who doesn't want to track down a copy of The Little Mermaid on VHS with the tower with a penis on it? That is true. That is true. That is a uh, that is a commodity that a lot of people would search search out. We had we had that in my house until my sister proudly pointed out out to my father. Oh no. We were we were my sister and I were in college. She more was pointed out because he claimed it wasn't actually a thing, and she said it was. And so, at one point when everyone was home, she pulled out the the VHS and showed it to him proudly. It was like I was in a I was right sort of manner. And then the movie since has disappeared from the house <laughs> may it rest in pieces yes <laughs> which is probably the case yeah but on that note too um what was it was it one of the godzilla movies um like the dvd came out from rhino i think and um because they lost the the copyright for it um they they sent out a thing saying hey we want you we're going to replace this dvd because it's no longer okay yep. for us to do but we're going to send you another one in place of that i remember looking for that online and, like, it was crazy what they were trying to get for these discs of whatever Godzilla movie it was. Yeah, I remember that happening where they were trying to buy back that DVD from people because yeah. Toho got um, very possessive. Because they, they always, Toho always gets very possessive when they're trying to reboot Godzilla. So, That's only happened, like, ten times. <laughs> well, the, the, they've done, there have been three big reboots of Godzilla at this point. Uh, Godzilla 1985, Godzilla 2000, and uh, Shin Godzilla, uh, that was, I think, 2014. Okay. Um, So I think it was around the time of Shin Godzilla that that happened. They were looking to do the reboot, but since that didn't do... I I think that movie not doing as well as they had hoped was what resulted in um, us now having these Toho... America joint operation Godzilla movies that we've had two of yeah. now. Matthew Broderick, man. <laughs> oh, th- that that was all America's fault. Toho doesn't oh. have to take any fault for that one. Oh, good. I was going to say, <clears throat> Christ. <laughs> yeah, no. Because that was 98. So. No, Toho, f- I believe, participated in the, the Gareth Edwards one with uh, Brian Cranston in a small role oh, yeah. um, and Godzilla in an even smaller one. And then the uh, King of the Monsters one that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. There was supposed to be another one coming out this year, but hadn't been for certain things that we shall not mention, right? Uh, no, they were supposed to start production on King Kong versus Godzilla, I believe. Uh, okay. Uh, That'd be interesting. I, I forget who, who's directing it, but it was someone that I read it and I went, really? Okay. <laughs> They like they they like grabbing indie directors, making them direct a big budget monster movie, and then going, wait, why didn't that work out as well as we thought it would? Well, this very this person with this very unique uh, vision and uh, you know has worked well with small budgets. We'll just give them you know 
you know, a hundred million dollars to work with, you know, and all these giant name actors that he won't be able to control, but or she won't be able to control, but ah, they'll be fine. Yeah. No biggie. Yeah. Yeah, and we wonder why Universal is doing badly. <laughs> well, at least um, for as not perfect as Invisible Man was, it was so much better than The Mummy. <laughs> the Mummy still hurts. Oh God! I think it's safe it, to say for everyone, The Mummy still hurts. Agreed. But you know, the thing was, there was there was the basis for some cool ideas, mm-hmm. but they just they let it get like. They let it get out of hand. They let the wrong people take charge, and they, they, they just kind of... They let it get out of hand, and nobody pulled the plug on the way our hero defeats the villain is through sexual assault. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Ugh. Um, they tried to run before they could, you know, crawl. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> but, yeah, so those are our lists. Do you have any, um, any honorable mentions that you want to mention real quick? Uh, I do have one, but it's more just... It's not even the movie itself, because the movie itself is total garbage. <laughs> There's so many continuity errors and stuff, it's atrocious. But uh, season four's attack of the the eye creatures is... It, it's so bad on so many levels. Yes. But, like, at the end of it, um, Joel and the bots go back, and they call out every single, like, terrible thing that goes down. And I just, mm-hmm. every time I watch it, I feel like it's the writers behind it because they have to write for so like for all of the really good movies they have to write for so many shit movies like yeah. you think about what they went through for Manos alone mm-hmm. and I, I look at this and it's just it's like a three minute segment of them saying you know whatever the thing was and they say they just didn't care and I, I love that because it feels like a real fuck you to the people that did Attack of the Eye Creatures yeah well and I think it's also yeah because they watch each movie like three times at least yeah, uh, you'd so, have to. Because they, like, they watch it once just to watch it, then they watch it a second time to pitch their jokes, and then they watch it a third time to pitch some more jokes and to make sure all the jokes are time-stamped. Right. So that way they can be delivered at the appropriate time of the recording. Well, when you think about it, too, they didn't, you know, we, I mean, we look now, and it's it's not easy, per se, but, like, you can go to websites and find information about the movie, and, you know, there's resources, yeah. They didn't have that back then. Like, all they had in front of them was the movie and whatever knowledge they had on hand, yep. really. Honestly. I mean, for whatever other resources they had, it's not an all-inclusive thing like we have now. Absolutely. So. Um, yeah. I, I, do, I, I do myself also have one quick honorable mention. Um, it didn't make my list, but it is a movie that I legitimately think you could remake today and have it be a good film, unlike it was when it was in the version that MST did, and that is The Screaming Skull. Ooh. Um, quite, I mean, uh, not as clever as it thinks it is whodunit, um, murder mystery slash horror film, but uh, enough fun, inventive things exist inside of it that if you were to remake it in today's day and age, uh, you could actually have something really fun. Uh, you would just also want to be smart and not call it that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, fantastic film. So I just a uh, quick honorable mention to to that one. Um, but but those, I mean, those are our lists. Um, any any of these movies that we have, any of these episodes that we have mentioned, whether on our list or not on our list, 
make sure you watch because they are fantastic. They're they're so much fun to to watch. Uh, so much fun to just get to experience uh, this show and what they do with what's put in front of them, for lack of a nicer way to put it. Um, but speaking of theaters, uh, Nikki, tell them about your theater. Oh, well, um, so I have a YouTube channel called, um, uh, Trivial Theater. I almost called it Mystery Science Theater. You can tell where my brain is. <laughs> um, I do, um, random obscure and straight up bad movie reviews and a lot of, um, the, uh, I guess the influence for what I do, my channel does go back quite a lot to MST and actually I've done some episodes, um, with another podcast to kind of go through the the history of what MST is and whatnot. And, um, it's, um, but yeah, I stick to mainly, um, really obscure movies or just ones that are considered bad. Uh, I do a synopsis breakdown or I do a synopsis, kind of a goofy synopsis and then a breakdown of the movie. Um, you can find me just at trivial theater on YouTube and, uh, step by and say, hi, uh, I'm always up for something fun. Yeah. Uh, guys, make sure that you, that you look her up on YouTube, you subscribe to her channel, you like her episodes, um, yeah, comment, you know, civil, friendly, positive comments in the comment section for her. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking for someone to be less civil or complimentary towards, uh, you can always email uh, email myself at moviesafterwork at gmail.com. Or if you want to make sure that, or if you want to see that other people feel the same way you do, you can uh, find me at Movies Work for the official Movies After Work Twitter feed. Um, Nikki, uh, where can they find you on uh, the the Twitters? I am at uh, trivia underscore chick, and that's chick without a K, so it's just trivia underscore uh, C H I C. Um, I put out some kind of random things, but. Uh, Definitely check out Thomas. He is incredible, and he always has good takes on Twitter, and one of the coolest movie podcasts that I've been able to be part of, oh, and it's been an absolute honor. You, you, you are too kind. You are, you are flattering me beyond what I, I deserve. Only what um, you deserve, my good man. You are incredible. Well, uh, I mean, Nikki's show is fantastic. Make sure that you watch it. Uh, she just uh, put out an episode on a movie called Brain Damage. Uh I sat there watching the episode laughing and just kind of staring in disbelief <laughs> at, <laughs> at the fact that a movie like this existed and I didn't know about it. Um, but she has a great catalog. Uh, she's done, uh, she, she did uh, Microwave Massacre, which we've done on our show. Uh, she has a fantastic episode. Uh, I forget who guests with you on the episode, but where uh, they actually sit there and go full MST riff style on one of my favorite uh, cult horror films, Cube. Uh, oh, yeah. So there's lots of great content on her on her page, so make sure you go subscribe, like, watch uh, to your heart's content. Um, but, yeah, thank you guys uh, so much for listening. Nikki, thank you for once again coming and joining in on the fun here and, and talking movies with me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's it's always an honor to be able to talk with you movies. Like, you just, you have such a knowledge base. It's absolutely incredible, and it's always my pleasure. Well, thank you. We'll, we'll have to continue to, to come up with random excuses to bring you back, because it's always fun <laughs> to have you here. Um, yeah, absolute, absolute delight, absolute blast. Well, thank you. Um, but, 
That is, I mean, that's the show, guys. Uh, this is Movies After Work. I am Thomas Green. Uh, please make sure you're being safe. Wear your masks. Keep your social distancing going on. If you have work, um, enjoy it, appreciate it, enjoy your day at work. And if you don't uh, have a nice, relaxing time at home, make sure to find ways to get yourself out of the house so you don't go stir-crazy. Uh, but above all else, be good to one another. Keep yourself happy, keep yourself smiling, and take care of yourselves. And don't forget to watch Mystery Science Theater 3000. Can't have one without the other, I think. True. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) All right. Take care, everyone.